It's Tuesday, March 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Fool.com and from Molly Fool One, Morgan Housel. Hello, hello. Thanks for being here, man. Good to be here. You're a busy man. You got a lot going on. I, 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 you were I do. just doing the basic columns for. I shouldn't say basic, like like you could just you know write them without even thinking about it. You you were doing your regular columns for Fool.com. I think that's how certainly a lot of readers know you. Uh, but now you're working on the Fool One service. I'm doing all kinds of things, working on Fool One and working on other different projects around here. So I've I've got my fingers in a lot of different pots. You were also on vacation last week. I don't want to make it sound like you're just you know you're never getting a day off. You're out. Uh, you're out in Seattle, right? I, we were out in Seattle. Yeah, we went to a wedding out out there in Seattle. Uh, we have we have some family out there that we stayed with. But uh, but other than that, the Molly Fool has had me chained uh, in the basement <laughs> for six years now. So it's it's good to get away. That is once not in a even while. remotely true. <laughs> no, it's um, not. You're right. We, uh, we will talk about a Seattle company shortly. Uh, we will also touch on Twitter, but I want to. I want to get your thoughts on where we are in the market right now, because anyone who has read your writing knows that you tend to view things from sort of a higher elevation than analysts who are focused on individual companies, individual industries, that sort of thing. What do you think about the market right now when you consider that, on the one hand, we're striking all-time highs. On the other hand, you have people like Seth Klarman recently coming out and saying, this is absolutely an overheated market yeah. and a crash is coming. He didn't, I don't want to put words in his that's mouth. Pretty close to what but he that's said. pretty close to yeah. what he said. I think there are a few things to, to really consider. One is that uh, you know, we've had a tremendous market rally over the past five or six years, you know, since the lows of 2009. But we also had one of the biggest market crashes directly before that. And if you take a longer view of things, rather than using 2009 as a starting point, you know stocks have barely kept up with inflation since 2007. So if you think of that from that stand up, you know from that point of view, from that starting point, there really hasn't been a, a giant rally at all. It's been a pretty dismal six or seven years if you look at it from that. Two, you know you can you can come up with all these different numbers and statistics to show that the market is overvalued, as really smart people like Seth Klarman have. But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, there, there's no timing forecast in that. I think the best example of this was was 1996 that Alan Greenspan first used the term irrational exuberance. And he was absolutely right about that, that the market was crazy in 1996. And it was a bubble in 1996. And it kept rallying for four, almost five years after that. So just because people are looking at stocks today and saying, look, its valuations are high, it's maybe overvalued, things are getting crazy. That does not mean that anything is going to happen next week or next month or next year or even in the next five years. It may, but there's a huge disconnect between the valuations today and what might happen in the short or even the, the, the medium term. I think going along with that, what investors really need to realize is the question the important question is not, is our stocks overvalued today? The important question is, what should I do about that? If stocks are overvalued, should I sell? Should I get out of stocks? I think the, the answer is overwhelmingly no, regardless of how overvalued stocks are. I mean, just going back through history, so much more money has been lost trying to avoid stock market crashes than has been lost of just sticking through them. So I think rather than trying to predict uh, volatility in the stock market. It's so much more useful to just get used to dealing with it. And sure, there's going to be a time in the future where stocks will fall 30, 40 percent. 
And the people who do will do the, the best over the long run are the people that just put up with that and deal with it. And when you have a 30% crash, you use that as a buying opportunity rather than trying to sell before it. Those are the people that end up shooting themselves in the foot in the long run. Part of the rise in the U.S. markets over the last few years, and I don't know what percentage should be attributed to this part, but part of it has been, it's been the best place around the world to put your money. 2013 was a terrible year for emerging markets. Yeah. And for, what, three years, four years now, Europe has been a place where investors, particularly institutional investors, are looking at and just making a terrible face like they just sucked on a lemon and saying, I'm not, I can't put any money there. Right. I can't go back to my superiors and say, here's why I was investing in Europe. And so part of what we've seen has been, look, this is the best option on the menu. Right. Is that changing now? Because yes, 2013 was terrible for emerging markets, but I don't think anyone is betting, just as I don't think anyone is betting that 2014 will be as great a year in the U.S. as it was 2013. I don't think anyone is really betting that 2014 will be as bad for emerging markets as 2013 was. No, I think it's it's Buffett's classic line, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. I think you, know, you go back five years or so and a lot of people were saying, you know, get out of America because that's that's the danger zone with the financial crisis and you want to be in Europe and emerging markets. That was a big theme five or six years ago. And, you know, that, that, that has not played out very well. And I think, uh, you know, you know, just the, the, the opposite of that is that these markets where people have been scared out of will end up doing well in the long run. You know, the, the, the Greek stock market did extraordinarily well in, I think, 2012 because it had been so battered before that. So it's, it's really – it's much easier for people to understand the concept of being greedy when others are fearful than to actually do it. A lot of people – say they're going to be greedy when others are fearful and they get that and they say that, you know, stocks crash are going to buy and then stocks crash and they don't want anything to do with it. So, you know, yeah, I think to answer your question, I think a lot of those battered markets like Europe and emerging markets will will do very well going forward. And a lot of them will probably do better than the U.S. market just, just because the U.S. market has done so well lately. I said yesterday that people who think that this market is overvalued in the U.S. are getting some new ammunition this week because we've got a couple of IPOs, Grubhub and King Digital Media, which is the company behind Candy Crush, which is going to go public. And unless something goes horribly wrong, unless something unforeseen happens, it's going to finish the day probably with a valuation somewhere in the neighborhood of what Hasbro has, which is, right. again, Kind of insane. Your your daughter, reader, should know. Uh, started a lemonade stand. She's on the Forbes list <laughs> exactly. now. It's exactly. a lot of people don't, don't know. I'm that. very proud. Right. I, I I did not get in on the friends and family IPO. <laughs> I'm a little bitter about that. Uh, but I am curious what you're watching now. We're a couple of months into the year. Are you looking at housing data? What are you looking at to give you a sense of? how heated, overheated, or just perfectly uh, temperate this market is? I, I think to me, those kind of statistics are interesting, but they're not, they, they don't really influence how I invest. So sure, you can look at the IPO market. I think there's a lot of craziness there, and a lot of people are going to lose a tremendous amount of money investing in, in many of those companies. Some of them will do well. I think most of them will not. But how does that influence how I invest, how I'm going to invest on a monthly basis? Not, not really at all. 
you know, I I I just uh, I I realize that stocks are going to do poorly from time to time, and they'll do well from time to time. And whether you know, uh, Box or Candy Crush IPOs at ten billion dollars, that's not going to influence how most American companies uh, earn their profits over the next five or ten years. So you know, you know, in terms of what I'm watching this year. You know, I, I've been watching housing for several years. I, I still think it's one of the most important stories in the United States, both the increase in housing prices, which has made it so that millions of Americans who were underwater on their mortgage are now are are now uh, they're above water on their mortgage. So they're in a position where they they can probably sell their house if they want to, which makes it more mobile, which is which is great news for the economy. I, I, you know, we're still. I've said this. I can't count how many times on these programs, but we're still. We're still at a point where we're building you know, far fewer homes than we will need to in the long run just to keep up with population growth. I sound like a broken record saying that, but I still think that's the most important story in the economy right now. So, you know, when we've, we've been, you know, five years since we've had a recession and the market has had a big rally in the last five years, whenever you have something like that, you're, you, you know, we're, we're five years closer to the next recession than we were five years ago. That's, 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 that's how people should look at it. But it's, it's, not, it's not a thing where it's going to influence how I'm going to invest on a, on a month-to-month basis. You can follow us on Twitter at MarketFoolery is this show's handle. Morgan's handle is at TMF Housel. Uh, something you tweeted this morning caught my eye. You wrote, great post on margins from at Jesse Livermore who is becoming the smartest finance blogger out there. Who in the world is Jesse Livermore? Well, Jesse Livermore, the actual Jesse Livermore, was a a very famous trader in the 1920s and 1930s who made and lost multiple fortunes. Uh, He's considered one of the best traders of all times, although he died uh, broke in a bathroom after shooting himself in the head. So, you know, he had some ups and downs in life. But he's one of the most... He wrote a book... Uh, that's that's that, that's famous about stock trading, and uh, you know he's he, he's a well-known trader. And someone on Twitter has taken up his persona, has used it as a pseudonym. I have no idea what his his real name is. I, I wish he'd reach out to me if he's listening to this. Maybe I'll send him this. And do we even know him. it's a man? I, I don't. That's that's a, that's a good. I, I assume I assume it is, but maybe that's a bad assumption. But someone who tweets under the pseudonym Jesse Livermore has just written some incredible market posts over the last few months and the last few years. I think he's really one of the smartest guys out there. I'd encourage everyone to go look at what he's read. But he wrote a really good post on profit margins this morning, and you know th- this might get a little wonky, but every argument out there that the, that stocks are overvalued, all of them rely on the assumption that profit margins are way too high and they're going to come down. So margins are just the amount of profit that companies pull out of each dollar of sales. That that is way too high, it's going to come down and that's going to bring corporate profits down and that's going to make stocks look overvalued and the stocks are going to crash 50%. Basically, every argument re- relies on this assumption. But it's not hard to argue that maybe the, maybe the assumption's wrong because the assumption has been wrong for 20 years. So, you know, there's the famous saying that it's dangerous to say things are different this time. But sometimes things do get different, and maybe we are in a new era of high profit margins. Uh, and all these these assumptions that stocks are are wickedly overvalued become become not true if if profit margins are are not elevated and are going are going to come down. So, you know, it's it, you know it's also possible that that's all wrong too, and profit margins are too hard and high and will come down. But he has a a, a really good way of of uh, discrediting what is what is seen as normal conventional wisdom in a way that I think is smarter and more analytical than almost else than almost anyone else out there. So he's someone I really admire, and I wish I knew his name. 
All right. Well, that's one more person to follow on Twitter. Uh, finally, I mentioned a Seattle company. Uh, the company in question is Starbucks, and that is because, as longtime listeners know, uh, I've been pounding the table, sometimes literally, asking the question, when is La Boulange going to get here? This is the food acquisition that Starbucks made a couple of years back. I'm happy to report it has finally arrived at the Starbucks closest to us here at Fool HQ. Went in this morning and uh, and tried some of the uh, the tasty items that they have there. And as a consumer, I'm happy. As a shareholder, I think I'm even happier okay. because it's. Uh, we were talking about this before the taping, and uh, I got to credit uh, our colleague Bill Barker at Fool Funds. That's another Twitter handle you can follow at Fool Funds. Uh, Bill Barker was the one who made the point that it's amazing that Starbucks has gotten as far as it has and achieved as much success as it has without ever really getting food right. Right, and that's true because the food. I would say over the last eight to ten years or so has been okay. Before that, in the 90s, the food was just flat out bad. Right. And the fact that they have made this acquisition and have rolled it out across the country, uh, I think it bodes well for the future because, as we've talked about with different retailers, anytime you can not only increase your same-store sales, get more foot traffic in, but also get the average ticket price up. That's going to help the bottom line. What kind of foods are they offering now? So what's interesting to me is that they are offering the standard pastries, muffins, that sort of thing. But they also have more savory offerings as well. So uh, things that look like, I don't know, like pastry quiches almost, tomato and cheese and and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm obviously not doing a good job marketing these things. But they it, it, it looks like... Uh, a wider array of offerings, and that leads into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which was, and we we I don't think we talked about this in great detail last week on Market Fuller. I know we touched on it uh, on the radio show, but last week Starbucks had their annual meeting. One of the things that they announced was that this test that they had been conducting in a few locations in Atlanta, Chicago, and Southern California, they had been testing the sale of beer and wine in the evenings. And it worked well enough that they are now going to roll that out to thousands of locations. Not all locations, presumably not the drive-throughs, but anything that <laughs> <laughs> I hope not the drive-throughs. <laughs> um, but any location that sort of has that cafe feel to it. And I look at the food offerings that they're now rolling out and saying, you know what, some of these more savory offerings would pair nicely with a glass of red wine. Yeah. I don't know. When you think about a leap like that, because there are some people out there saying, wait a minute, is there going to be any kind of blowback? Is this a move that could backfire? I know you don't study Starbucks as a business that closely, but just on the surface, what do you think about that? I wouldn't be nervous about it backfiring. I would just be more nervous about its success. I think you know, there, there, there's, there's a saying with businesses, mission creep or scope creep, where companies are really good at doing this one thing. And they think, oh, because we're good at this one thing, we're probably good at, at, at these other things. One of the best examples was General Motors had been making auto loans for decades, and they're really good at it. So, so in, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they decided we should start making mortgages. And then after 2008, <laughs> sure. after 2008, they realized that actually they aren't very good at making mortgages. And, they, and it's, that's one of the reasons the company ended up going bankrupt. I'm not saying that's going to be the case with Starbucks. But Starbucks is very good at, at, at coffee and breakfasts and breakfast-type food, as we're talking about. Are they going to be good with alcohol? 
maybe, but that's that's not really within their niche. So no, I, I'm not worried about it backfiring because most Americans are are are, are usually happy with any place that will serve them alcohol. But I I I I don't think you know uh, just thinking about it right now. I I don't think it's going to be a game changer for the company. Certainly, alcohol is a higher margin product. Yeah. But I I share your same maybe fear is overstating it, but uh, wariness because. If this does turn out to be some huge success, then I think it's perfectly logical for someone within executive the executive suite at Starbucks to say, you know what? Why limit this to just beer and wine? Let's have you know brandy. Let's have single malt scotch. Let's you know, and the move into liquor. That's where I think it's it can get a little dicey if they achieve that level of success. Don't you think the atmosphere? between like a breakfast cafe and a lounge where you might want to enjoy a brandy are totally different. If I was sitting in Starbucks drinking brandy, I would feel terrible about myself. <laughs> I think it depends on the hour of the day, doesn't it? I mean, if it's a 10 little, in the morning. But still, if I, if, but, but even if it's 8 o'clock at night and I'm sitting in Starbucks and there's you know, a college kid doing his homework next to me and there's like a blueberry muffin at the counter and I'm sitting there sipping brandy, I would feel, I'd feel bad about myself. Well, it, it does get to the atmosphere because I have been in – some locations, and the two that leap to mind are one that's here in Old Town, Alexandria, down by the river, and one that's actually uh, close to my cousin's house in Toronto. Um, both of those have a, enough of a cozy lounge atmosphere that in the evening I could see having a glass of wine there. Having said that, the majority of Starbucks locations that I frequent are not ones where I would feel particularly comfortable having a glass of wine. It would it would feel odd. It's the equivalent of going to like a really fancy bar and drinking a hot chocolate. You just feel out of place. <laughs> I don't think we can top that. We're going to end here. <laughs> Morgan Housel, read him on fool.com. Follow him on Twitter at TMF Housel. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.